This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with Matt Oberdorfer from Embassy of Things. What's up, man? Hey, thanks, Jake, for having me on the show. Absolutely. We've had a great conversation before we started recording, so we just need to recap a few things and then clue everybody in on our conversation. So you uh, came in from out of town. Let's start off really quickly. Just kind of walk us through, like, what is Embassy of Things? And then I think you have a fascinating story. So let's go back into all the things that you've been through, the, the successes, the failures, the challenges of an entrepreneur. So yeah, we talked about a lot of that, and I'm really excited to kind of get back into it. So Embassy of Things, or EOT, is a... Uh, software company we do basically we call it the industrial data fabric so it's basically the lego blocks that you need to kind of have in place to to build a digital twin specifically industrial digital twin industrial data lakes cloud historians and uh, the company really focused on starting in oil and gas right so some of our biggest biggest customers are big oil and gas companies such as bp right mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a lot of the companies locally here in Houston uh, as our customers. And um, uh, now the company is actually reaching out into other industries such as mining uh, mm. adjacent to it, as well as manufacturing. So did you guys, <clears throat> did you guys have people from the team that were from oil and gas originally? Is that why it was like a target or was it like, we've identified this problem, but oil and gas is probably the one who suffers from it the most. Let's go get that. Space. So, yeah. So very good question. So, <laughs> The origin, the origin story for this company, there's actually like two core concepts. The first one, which is the more fun one, is um, that um, I had two exits, successful exits with other companies that I've founded before. And I was thinking about doing the next thing. I was sitting together with some friends and we said, well, let's start a company together. Um, and the main objective is to do it with people we really like working with. Mm -hmm. So that's it. That's it. We just, that's, we, that's the whole, that's we, the whole we, idea. We will figure out what we're going to do, but we just have to make sure that we just actually get people on board to the company that, you know, we, we actually, when you have calls, stand up calls in the morning, you, you know, whatever, that you actually like the people, right? So that's kind of a fun environment. <laughs> <laughs> and the people who founded companies are all serial entrepreneurs, had exits before and all success. So it was more like, hey, you know, we really actually like hanging out to, with each other. We all have you know, done successful exits. So let's figure that out. The second part is that, um, you know, I went to the dark side for a while, becoming actually a VC versus being a serial entrepreneur. And one of the most overlooked problems that all my startups went into uh, was to actually get data out of industrial environments into their um, industrial analytics and you know, AI platforms. Everybody wants to do AI. I mean, now with ChatGPT, it's like, you cannot, you know, do one LinkedIn swipe or whatever with bombarded with AI. Everybody has that even in their title, right? So we, that's sexy, that's cool and so on. And, and, and for me as an entrepreneur, I always try to focus on something that everybody who is going with the trend is going to need. It's kind of like, you know, a developer is going to, develop a new, uh, you know, uh, mean a bunch of houses, it's just basically creating this. 
you don't want to be the fancy house there. You want to be the plumbing. You want to be the, the stuff that everybody's going to need. You want to be the toilet seat, right? Mm -hmm. Selling pickaxes to the next gold rush. Exactly. Yeah. So basically that, right? So for, for us and for me, what I figured out is that typically what, what happens when startups, um, you know, AI analytics startups that go, specifically in oil and gas and say, hey, we have, we have a product that you can do plunger optimization or, you know, drilling bit target algorithm or whatever, some sort of stuff, right? That's all with AI. Uh, as soon as they go to a big company and they say, okay, well, we need data for it. You need a lot of historical data to train your machine learning model. You need a lot of historical data to even just do analytics stuff, right? And the big gas companies say, nobody touches our data because it's secluded. It's air-gapped from the internet for good reasons. It's cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. So here is, we're going to FTP you some data. Right? We're going to give you some data you know, maybe on a thumb drive or whatever, right? So startup goes off with a thumb drive or FTP data and they are coming back and says, hey, we just figured out to give you, you know, 2% of production increase or whatever, good news, you know. Our, our POC will be successful. And the sad news is they are, the, the POC hell is plastered with bodies of successful POCs. They're all in hell. Yeah. Because even though you proved that your analytics, your AI thing will actually help the company. When you go back and says, okay, let's put that into production. You still have to get the data from the operational systems continuously, probably in real time. Um, this microphone just magically moved. Um, <laughs> in real time into a, uh, into a cloud service. Oh, hello. <laughs> um, so you have to you have to move you have to get the data moving not just one time not just a steady thing, uh, but you have to continuously move it in, in real time into the cloud, and that is not easy. First of all, because it's you know disconnected from the cloud in the first place, but also you know the 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 industrial companies they buy asset, they develop new oil fields, the end of life other ones. It's not like a it's like an organism that grows and goes down when there's a new wave of oil and gas. You know they they it's, oh if the Price of the oil barrel goes here, then we actually stop doing, you know, getting even producing from these wells and so on and so forth. Right? So at that point, you don't, you know, have data, you don't need data. So you have to have a solution that actually brings the data in. So we built, and that was the second part to actually funding this company, um, basically the plumbing between what's in the oil field and what's in the cloud. We basically built a data pipe that you can switch on, switch off. You can actually grab data you know, with certain intervals, you can make and transform and enrich it so that it actually is palatable and usable uh, by AI and machine learning algorithms because these algorithms typically don't actually want raw data. Raw data is messy and has data losses and all that stuff. You have to kind of prepare it and cleanse it up, clean it up and, and in a cleanse state, it's probably also enriched it with stuff. So we built basically that system that can do that. So it's not, you know, the first thing that you think about, hey, you don't want to support AI and analytics, uh, but it's a very important piece. And the truth is that everybody will love you, right? The AI and analytics company will love you because they can then share, yeah, we can put it in production. Obviously, the cloud vendors will love you because you put a lot of data in the cloud that was not there before. It's billions of records, you know, per company per day, right? 
uh, that has to be consumed, processed, and so on and so forth. And the customers themselves will love you too because now they can actually do something in production they were not able to do before. So that was the second part. It was kind of this missing, overlooked little problem mm -hmm. uh, that, that that's not as sexy as machine learning and AI that had to be solved. That's kind of... How do you overcome... So I was, on, I was on a call with, uh, with, a, with a guy who um, is at a, a data management company. Uh, it's a software platform. And so they come in with, with, with EMPs or whatever and, and help them really kind of wrangle all the information. A similar concept. Not similar in what you actually do, but similar in kind of uh, high level. Right? And he's like, man, but the biggest barrier that we have is when we're coming in and talking to some of these companies is like a lot of these oil and gas companies... Um, just like to build a lot. They have these IT teams and then they, they, they blew and they like to build everything themselves. And he was like, you know, I can get buy-in from the production department and from operations and even finance. And it's like IT's there and they're supposed to be the enabler, but they're the ones who are actually like killing deals for us because they're like, well, we want to do all this work. We want to build it all ourselves. So I'm kind of curious what your experience has been oh, there. Absolutely. And this how is do you a, overcome that? This is a great point. So typically our ideal customer is exactly a company that tried that and failed. Like literally, there's a lot of them. <laughs> so it's, 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 here's, here's, here's what happens in in uh, and this is not particularly uh, focused also on oil and gas, but also on in manufacturing or in in mining or in any of the other industries. In order to build a system that actually gets data in from OT to IT, if they try to build it themselves, what's going to happen is um, first. Let's say you have some IT data engineers that start building something in Python or whatever. Well, after a year or so, um, two things are going to happen. First of all, that IT guy is probably going to move on. This is un the code is not, it, it's, there's, there's nobody who's going to further develop the code. It's mm -hmm. literally technical debt. It becomes technical debt, right? And then what also happens is suddenly the requirements change. And you know, they say, well, instead of every hour, we need this thing to run every minute or every second or you know, oh, we, we, we changed the naming convention for the tags over here. Oh, some stuff happens and the whole thing is suddenly, it's still working, but they are like, we need to upgrade this, right? And since, uh, you know, the, 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 the people with the knowledge left or they moved somewhere else, they're like, I don't want to touch this anymore. Please take it off my hands. But they're looking around for another solution. So if we come in and say, we have a no-code uh, platform that can do exactly what you need to do and we can also scale it up to much more stuff and we can do all these additional features and not only you are customers, but also all the other oil and gas customers are this, uh, doing the same thing with our software, which means you have, a, you have a super safe, secure, and simple way to make sure that all the new stuff that comes up in the future in terms of technology advancements are also plugged into it because you just basically receive, you know, an, a, a new version, an update that has new features in it, you know, every you know, month if you want, but, you know, depending on how, many, how fast you want to upgrade. Uh, so it, it kind of moves from a tech debt uh, you know, we implemented it ourselves to there's actually an application, a system that is a kind of ind industry-wide used application that they can plug in. And then it becomes mostly a pricing discussion because they can say, oh, we can also, you know, maybe in IT, they have like, we have three data engineers that could do this for, I don't know, in three months. Like, okay. And then what? I mean, it becomes more like, you know, what what's better like long term? What's you know what, what's the opex like? What's the the capex they need to actually invest upfront? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked about that for years. Of just oil companies are good at pumping oil and gas, and they should focus on that and should not build as many things internally as possible. And there's use cases where uh, I was actually on a call with a bunch of guys 
Um, everybody's nerding out on the solutions that they kind of built internally. But yeah, there are certain use cases where you can very quickly spin something up, and I think it makes sense for them. But for something as complex as what you're talking about, it's like it's a no-brainer for me to go with somebody like you guys as opposed to like hiring this massive team to support this project that may or may not work, and a lot of times it doesn't work. Yeah. And also, it doesn't scale. Meaning, if you implement if you implement something to requirements, and then if it's successful and it works for a while, then there will be other departments and business units coming out and say, "Hey, we want this data from over here. We want this thing from over there. Oh, we want to build an industrial data lake, and we want to build it all and put it all in here." And then suddenly, that Python code, you know, you know, either you turn the Python code in your own application, you build an internal application or you actually look you know build or buy you actually buy something so that's when we that's for us ideal because if you are talking to someone who's in the middle of building something we are basically saying okay let's just wait for six months or, or nine months i mean we are not in a hurry right uh, the oil and gas business is is moving at a glacier speed it's now going you know i would say the last three years the glacier has become faster mm -hmm. <laughs> but, yeah <laughs> but it's still it's still you know, it, it takes a while for them to figure stuff out. So are you guys primarily like the foundation of just, hey, you've got all this massive amounts of data, let's wrangle all of it so that you can go and do things with it. Do you guys have any things out of the box that you're doing in terms of whether it be, I don't know, visualizations, digital twins? Yes. Walk, so me, we, walk me through that. So, you know, we followed kind of from a product perspective, um, really uh, kind of concepts that were true already, I think, 10, 15, I mean, 20 years ago, um, where we basically thought about what's, what's, what's going to be our end game, our product offering. Uh, we started with one thing that is the data wrangling part, right? If we can be the ones that actually are the kind of industry standard to actually get data in from OT into IT, and we have all the bells and whistles to be kind of the air traffic control system, and there's no coding involved, and, you know, and we can just roll it out to administrators, great. What's next, right? So the next thing that we did uh, last year is we added another solution to it, which is basically taking the asset hierarchy data, you know, all the metadata that's attached to it, right? If you take a, a you know, an artificial pump or, you know, it, you, you have you know, maybe tanks and plungers and whatever, some all sorts of stuff, right? How is that, um, how is that asset uh, data represented on the OT side? Right? Because you have SCADA systems, uh, you have SCADA tags, you have historians, and, and so on, and you have maybe an asset management system. Right? That is not in IT either. But then in IT, you also have an SAP system, and that has its own hierarchy of how the assets are structured. Yeah. So we built basically an asset management system that continuously moves in that asset hierarchy information from OT, and you can kind of merge it up with what you have in IT and you can build new graphs. And I'm talking about really hierarchical, cyclical type of graphs that you can you know, manage and, and, and these are visual, like you can, it's kind of like a folder structure that you can kind of click through your assets and say, I want to see this pump in route 15 in areas, you know, Permian or whatever, right? So you can click on that and then get the data from that. And it, you can see in the attributes, you know, uh, metadata that comes from a historian um, or an asset management system in OT, and un right underneath is an SAP system or an EAM system that, that's there too. So <clears throat> we added this because um, it also seems to be a major pain point for a lot of those companies that they 
they have these two different, there's no single source of truth, right? And then uh, uh, the second part that we added was uh, a product that actually does visualization. And, you know, tons of companies and also open source systems are out there like Grafana. Um, and, and, you know, there's obviously also commercial other applications out there. But what we did do is we set ourselves actually a goal to, um, to be a, uh, a, a visualization system that's so simple that it can be used to create new dashboards and apps for the OT guys. They can do it. They can just, you know, upload a GIF or a BMP picture and say, that's my pump and boom, 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 right? And at the same time, it has the functionality of Grafana so that it can put in data sources like from Databricks and Snowflake and, you know, all these commercial systems. And you can build a coherent dashboard that basically allows you to interactively, you know, push uh, or, or, or um, um, you know, uh, inter interactively allow the, uh, the visualization graphs to be populated from different type of source data systems based on where your context is, if that makes sense. It's basically kind of a context-driven uh, visualization layer that, you know, in, in the backend really goes down to OT systems and IT systems and, and allows to show it together. And it's super simple, right? So it's kind of Power BI, Grafana, and some, you know, um, some scalar visualization thing in, in one. So we added that, and that kind of concluded our whole product, mm -hmm. right? Because now we have really building blocks that people, and they are completely independent uh, software products. So if you already have visualization, you don't need to buy all this. Yeah. You, or you can do, as I mentioned, you, so, so you can just use them as Lego blocks to kind of build your industrial, you know, digital twin. Are you guys seeing more traction with certain parts of the market, like either you know upstream, whether it be with operators, whether it be the local service side? I would say upstream. Downstream. Upstream so. is, is the most active. I would say. Are there certain kinds of use cases that are yeah. trends that you're yeah. seeing? Yeah, I mean, mostly. Kind of bring I think in? I think what happens there is is mostly production optimization, production monitoring, kind of applications. I mean, we do. We I think we support over 450 different use cases from. You know, the daily morning report, how was production yesterday, which is right, very simple, but everybody wants it. I mean, in our guest company, because it says uh, that's how we did yesterday. Uh, and, and then, uh, you know, to, to production forecasting, right? To tank monitoring, which is kind of a very kind of low frequency, to real-time drilling, which is sub-second data, where you have, you know, literally billions of data points coming in per day, right? So there's... There's just tons of different <laughs> use cases, but I would say the majority is really about optimizing optimizing production. Mm. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk a little bit more about your background. You, you and I were talking about before we started recording. Um, so you were you were living out in San Francisco. Right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yes. So walk me walk me through some of these. Uh, tell me tell me some stories about these first startups. So you know, my background is um, you know I, I, I always wanted to be uh, an entrepreneur, and and I, I have been since uh, you know. I was 17 out of my parents' house uh, and started my first company. My mom was like, where are all these checks coming from? What are you doing? Right? <laughs> I was selling software, right? Um, so, uh, but in Silicon Valley, when, when I was in, in, in school, in college and studied computer science, I always said to my colleagues, I'm gonna, one day I'm gonna go to Silicon Valley and do my own startup and you know, do the whole like spiel. And I did. Ultimately, you know, I, I had my my um, 
company on Willow Road, which is basically really the road that goes out to Meta, where, where I think only like 20 years ago was Sun Microsystems. Uh, I think it was the original starting office for Cisco, small little office yeah, when yeah. we were in there. Um, and I raised, uh, you know, funds uh, from billion dollar funds, um, you know, uh, and, you know, ultimately, uh, I think this is my seventh startup. Um, you know, some of them failed, some of them uh, were successful. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the things for me um, is as an entrepreneur, I just learned a lot and some of it was the hard way. Yeah. I think that's how you have to learn it, right? Well, you know, if I could do it differently, I would give myself some advice. Like, for instance, one advice I would say, in your first CSA price round, okay, always go and try to get as much possible money, legitimately, right, you know, that you can, right? Meaning, if, if, if it says, okay, so my series A, I don't need, I don't want to give away so much of my company, I don't need $10 million, I only go for 2.5 million. I would suggest you go for $10 million. And because of the following reason, in your first round, you are in control of your entire company. It belongs yeah. to you. You have no other person there. Secondly, that's number one. Secondly, probably all or most of your, your forecasting and your pitch is projections of future, which is mostly a dream. It's a promise. <laughs> it's a promise to what you're going to do. So, there's no real valuation. There's, I, I knew some companies, they raised $30 million at their Series A, right? So it depends on what you're promising, right? And, and so you are in that driver's seat. And thirdly, very important, any normal investor, I mean, normal being, you know, average typical invest, investor, um, will want to have 20 to 25% of your company for the first Series A. And it doesn't matter if they give you $10 million or $2 million or $1 million, they still want 20 to 25%. Mm -hmm. So if you get 10 million for 20 to 25%, you, you're going to lose the same 20 to 25% for just getting 1 million, right? So I really suggest that, you know, in your CSA, you know, if you can wait uh, uh, and, and actually, you know, self-fund it, bootstrap it until you get to a point where you get a higher valuation or you get a term sheet, that allows you to raise more money in your CSA, do that, right? Don't try to like close a, a CSA fast and say we go for less money because we want to not give away so much, to, you know, of the company so much equity. So that's that's one. Did you learn much about that, like who to raise money from and, and certain? So the other thing, and you know, we talked about this earlier, is ultimately as an entrepreneur, you have to think about an exit and where you you as an entrepreneur will want to exit. What I mean with this is, let's say, um, you know, you would be happy with a $50 million exit. So that means you're going to sell your company with 50 million, for $50 million. And that's fine. You don't want to be a billionaire. You don't want to buy your own super yacht, whatever, right? You just want no, to- No sports teams, you yeah, know. No basket, you know, nothing, <laughs> right? So, but, and, and, and you think, okay, if we sell it for 50, you know, maybe with tech after taxes, I own still whatever, uh, 20%, I end up with 10 million or whatever, right? And you're like, I, I, I could live with that. that. That would be for me perfect, right? So, so you kind of make your plan. What do you think is something that you want? And of course, then you think, okay, now how does that help me with my investors? So my, and this is just my personal experience, suggestion is only raise funds from 
uh, investors that actually where the fund size is matching or is smaller than your exit. So if you want to sell the company and you're happy with a company of 50 million, go to a fund that has 50 million fund size or less. They can also have 20 million. Uh, if you want to, you know, if you think that you're happy selling a company for 150 million, go for a fund size that has 50, 100, 150 million or less. Now, why? Why is that important? It's because when the time comes for this exit and you raise money from a $20 million fund and you sell the company for $20 million, that fund will be really happy, right? If you raise money for a billion dollar fund, they will not want you to sell it because 20 million is jump change. It's like not even showing up on the third zero after the comma, you know, or after the you know, dot, right? So for them, their job, uh, and this is their job as we see, is to actually return a billion dollar if it's a billion dollar fund. They, they, their job is to make billion dollar unicorns, right? Mm. So if you want to sell it for 20 million, they are not, they, if they are on the board, which they will be because they are VC, they will not want you to sell it for that price, right? So and uh, there might be some exceptions, but that typically is the case. So as an entrepreneur, you know, if you're raising money, I would suggest say, think about that first. Go to those investors that actually match your expectations in terms of exit uh, and, and make sure that when the time comes and uh, there is an offer that they will be happy and you will be happy and, and the world is a better place. Now, the second part of this is that if you look at, and you can uh, Google that and, and, and ask ChatGPE also, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know what, what's the distribution of, of companies and how, for how much they, did they sell for, right? So you have basically um, a, um, a distribution where you have a lot of companies that are sold for smaller amounts, for 10 million, for 20 million, right? There are many, many, many more companies. And there are only very few that are sold for $2 billion, right? So as you pick your number, also be aware that the probability of you being successful in exiting goes mm. dramatically down, right? You can pick a billion dollar exit because you have a great idea and it's gonna be a billion dollar you know, play, or you do a pick and shuffle play, which is basically at some point acquired to be like tucked into some other piece. Uh, and that's a $50 million, right? Uh, the high, these are the higher chances because somebody's gonna probably have to uh, pick you up because otherwise the competitors will pick you up and, and, and stuff like that. Um, so I think that's, you know, some very important decisions that you have to make as an entrepreneur. So you said you've had, you've had two successful exits. Um, what kinds of companies were those? And then what did you learn kind of throughout that process? Yeah. So the, these were those two. Yes. Um, so um, I think the, 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 the experiences here is, first of all, an exit doesn't happen by itself. You, you're not going to just sit there and somebody knocks on your door and it's like, you want to buy your company. Hey, we want to give you money. Right? Even though I have to say that I literally get emails every day that says, we want to buy your company. And I'm like typically putting it in a trash can. I, literally, I, I, yeah. I, get, I get those emails. Um, but no real deal is, is typically working this way. What happens is that there is some event, meaning a company is you're getting so competitive to another company that they are like, you know what? We better buy those guys because the money costs us to compete with them is higher than the price we would actually 
have to buy that mic. Or, um, you know, uh, you know there, there's a, you know, two companies doing the same thing. They, they, they actually want to collaborate together and, and, and because they augment each other. They're not competing, but they're augmenting. And, and or you could be, uh, there are companies out there that actually just buy other companies to kind of put them together, almost like a PE mm. uh, play where you actually just buy different pieces and they all together become a solution. So there's there's always a dynamic and there's always a event. And so the tricky part is as an entrepreneur, uh, in, in for me this happened now a couple of times, uh, is that if you are able to kind of create this event, right? And so you don't wait for it to happen. It can happen kind of naturally because you're so good and you're competing with another company and eventually they're like, okay, we got to figure this out. Or what you also could do is you could say, okay, well, I'm raising another round. Okay. And let's say you, you get a term sheet um, and say, okay, well, with this new round of money, we are going to this additional market or we are going to build this additional product um, or we're going to penetrate this particular you know, customer or whatever. And if, if, if any of those steps are basically stepping on the toes of another company that's bigger than you, right, and they hear about it, they have a choice to make. You're forcing a decision. You basically say, okay, well, this company here is going to make that move, that chess move. So if we let them make it, right, and they have, which they might not know, but if, if, if they get some idea that if they have that amount of money to compete with us in that space that they're going to go into and they already have a track record of being successful in this space, then it becomes pretty much an M&A decision. It's like, do we want to actually buy them? Or do we let them, you know, basically, do we just head on and compete with them and, and so on? So if you build that momentum and you kind of create this event, then in a way you you kind of build a, a scenario where the, an exit kind of happens. It not, it's not a, you know, bulletproof recipe, you know, but just from experience, I've seen that work, you know, well. Yeah. So do you feel like you, you, you kind of, do you feel you come up with these strategies kind of early on or it's, you just kind of see opportunities and you're like, well, we know an exit's on the horizon. That's a very good question. So I think that um, you cannot foresee the future. So early on strategies might be you can, can, you can kind of play, um, you, can, you, you can play head games and think about, oh, what if that happens and that happens, that happens. But typically um, what you cannot foresee is dynamics in other companies and how they react to the market, right? So there might be a company that has a, let's say a digital twin strategy and suddenly that becomes a big thing for this company and they, they now have to change their own strategy internally. And that means suddenly, you know, there's, you know, these kind of gaps in their, uh, in their offering or in their services or whatever. And then they are starting to look around, right? Um, so typically at the very beginning of a company, when you are really starting, you don't know that yet. You really, the exit really becomes interesting after you became successful and somewhat, you know, recognized in an industry, then if you do then a step, then at that point, um, that step uh, will be or should be tied to what you actually at that point see in the market. So in, in, in some way, back to your question, it's contextual and it's time sensitive. 
Um, but it will still take some time just because you say, okay, I'm going to do this right now. It does not happen overnight. So whenever you actually get to that point and you're like seeing kind of the matrix, <laughs> um, then, you know, a, an exit or an acquisition still will take, you know, months uh, because, you know, this, there's a, this whole process involved uh, of, you know, how two companies actually get to that point where one says, okay, we're going to like join forces. Yeah. I think there's another, there's another scenario that I've seen just kind of followed closely. Uh, I think it's like really relevant to us. You see acquisitions like uh, pin gaming, buying Barstool sports, right. For distribution, you see, right. um, you know, HubSpot come in and buy um, uh, the hustle. Right. And so the hustle had a massive um, newsletter. You see business insider buying uh, morning brew. Right. And so you see these, tech companies that have products, right, where they're looking to get more distribution so you can have a more of a negative customer acquisition cost through people who've already built out right. massive networks, right? And so it's just kind of like a bolt-on acquisition to help. But Because now when you're looking expand. at marketing, yeah, it's like, do I want to go out and just keep spending all this money on, you know, Facebook and Instagram and, and LinkedIn yeah. ads, or do I want to go to where the people that I'm trying to reach anyways are over here on this newsletter or this podcast or this you know video show or whatever it's, it may be and just go and buy the audience bolted yeah, on and then it's yeah. like a, it's a build or buy do you yeah. want to build this yourself or you just buy somebody who did it already yeah ultimately yeah exactly <laughs> is there anything you feel like you've uh you've kind of learned about yourself as an entrepreneur maybe things that you and we talked about a little bit you know i kind of some misconceptions about what i thought i wanted to do and then the longer i spend my time in the trenches i think i've really um yeah just understood i guess i have more self-awareness now to where i know kind of like what energizes me and like where i i want to spend my hours in my day and like what i want to do I'm yeah. curious if there's anything that you've like learned about yourself over these years of yeah being in the trenches with all these startups yeah i mean from my side i i'm really um i'm really energized with building companies up to a certain size yeah uh, what i mean with this is as a small company, and, and you know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, as a small company, you have one strength, which is, which is speed. Right? Um, you are basically in a speedboat and you got to have an A-team on board because you outmaneuver everybody else, right? So that's, that's your strength. All the bigger companies have more money, more people, more resources that they can throw at stuff, but they're going to be slower. They're like oil tankers of bigger ships. They're like... Rrr, rrr. So... The second part that you need to do is be like a laser-focused sniper. Right? If you do a marketing campaign, you cannot just throw like, oh, you know, we're going to do a big you know, marketing launch and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, we're going to go to this show and have a big booth and to this show and go to a big booth. Um, even if you have a lot of money. But that's one thing that I also learned, you know, when, when I raised, you know, a lot of money from you know, really big funds, if, if you then go and say, oh, God, we're going to have a big booth, you know, with our own setup, design, whatever, right? Um, not effective. I would, I would, as a startup, even if you have money raised, I would not do it. I would really literally look is where is your ideal customer? It might be a small little seminar room, you know, in Houston where they discuss the, with petroleum engineer, <laughs> petroleum engineers, something versus... Yep. Having uh, you know a booth at the the offshore technology conference that happened just a, couple, a few weeks ago, right? 
where you, if you if you buy a booth there and there and you spend a hundred thousand dollars on that freaking booth, you might get way less customers than if you go to to one of the smaller things. So, so you have to be extremely focused and think about um, how you get there. Uh, you know, in terms of so back to this for me, that is something that that inspires me and 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 where I'm feeling passionate about, right? Because um, when when I have a team and 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 work with with customers and also partners, where we can build that up, um, you know, you're really a, a close knit group of of friends or people that are in the same adventure. Right. Mm -hmm. Once it reaches a certain size where the company is, let's say, you know, beyond 50 people, you know, 70 people, and it, it becomes more like a process where you have this department and that department and this department and outsourced and agencies and outsourced people here and here and here. And you kind of lose the speed and you kind of transfer into or, or convert into kind of like a, a big company, but on a small scale. Um, and, and that then starts growing and growing and growing. Um, that's for me at that point where I'm like, okay, um, you know, this is a, it's, it's a different, it's a different life, day of a life of an, of an entrepreneur, because suddenly you're not really, you know, sitting on your speedboard, you're on a bigger boat and you have to be more strategic and you have to, you know, um, kind of, you know, um, organize all your people that they, they do the things correctly, which you also have to do in a small team. Uh, but at some point, the, the 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 agility goes away, and so for me, that when, that's when it becomes kind of less interesting. Mm. That's all. No, I I hundred percent agree, man. I think we're we've been very much in this like zero to one phase for for a while for for Wildcatters, and it's cool. Now we're kind of starting to get our legs beneath us and kind of starting to like go into like growth, and it's it's cool to see how things have like transformed over time. You know, for so long it was just like. A handful of us, you know, kind of shooting from the hip, doing the cowboy stuff, and yeah. now it's like, now nah, we got like systems and processes. We got more people, yeah. Um, and, and then building this is the cool thing, I think, because ultimately this, that's the foundation that all the rest will run on, right? That's when you set the culture of the company. Yeah, you know that that's when you bring key people on board. It's so 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 critical for hiring the right people in the early phases. I mean, mm -hmm. if if you have fifty people, you hire one person more. You know, it's it's a 50, 51st percentile, right? Or one out of 50 percentile or 51 percentile. So it becomes, you know, in terms of what can go wrong, it's different than if I hire the, 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 the 10th employee. Right? Yeah. If that is a, is, if it's a, if it's the wrong choice, then a 10th of your company is invested in the wrong thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's. Yeah, it's a big deal. Well, Matt, I know you got to you got to run to this next meeting, but I really enjoyed the conversation both here and then prior to us getting on the mic, and, and enjoyed having you in town. And um, thanks for making it, and I would love to catch up with you later on the road and see how things are going for you guys. Uh, where can people check you guys out? What's the what's the website? Um, so simple web website for the for the company is embassyofthings.com. Uh, you can also go to industrialdatafabric.com if you're yeah. interested in the solution. Um, yeah, that would be it. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. If you guys like the episode, take two seconds to uh, rate and review. Share this with all your colleagues and your friends, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.